Okay, right on. Well, hello, all you Sam Says listeners. Today we have on Matt from Freedom to Fly. Now, if you don't know who Matt is, I mean, Matt and, and Greg, who is his, the co-founder of Freedom to Fly, you know, have become just really legends in, in this whole freedom-oriented movement. And uh, they're former airline pilots and, and airline pilots at heart. And um, they were let go from their position uh, due to the vaccine mandate, or maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong there, you know, put on leave, whatever you might call it, and uh, set out to fight for Canadian rights and Canadian bodily autonomy and 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 sovereignty and and really just have done an amazing job. So we're very thankful for for Matt to be able to join us today and 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 thank you Matt for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me Sheldon. It's uh, it's like we were talking just before we started rolling. It's a, it's an exciting uh, group of people to be talking to because I think the thirst for wisdom and the thirst for knowledge really kicks in uh, sort of in the post-secondary years of life. And, uh, you know, gosh, I had a lot of people helping orient me. So if, uh, if I could even give, you know, a, a fraction of a percent back, uh, it, it's fun for me. So thank you. Right on. Yeah, well, thanks again. Um, so Matt, you know, you, you and Greg, Greg unfortunately wasn't able to make it, but you know, you you are so passionate about your work. Every time you hear it, when you guys speak on your website, uh, Free to Fly, please check it out. It's it's so amazing to hear because it's it's people who are clearly passionate about the work that they're in. Can you take us through, you know, before we get into the whole story of, of you know, what Free to Fly is and, and the, the challenges and the fights you guys have been going through to, to ensure that, um, you know, Canadians are, are uh, have sovereignty of their body. Can you just tell us how you got into the, the aviation industry? Was this a passion from you as a, you know, a young age or did this something happen out of the blue that made you passionate about aviation? Can you take us through your story there? Absolutely. Actually, there's a joke. How do you know a date with a pilot is, is half over? And the answer is because he says, enough, enough talk about airplanes, let's talk about you. And uh, what that does is, is it really underscores sort of the, almost the um, affliction, but I use it in a positive term that, that you know, an obsession with aviation is. We are at, at, at our core aviation nerds. And uh, I mean, you might know one or two, but uh, we've been this way since we were little kids for the most part. And uh, so the people that go all the way in, in aviation, generally speaking, not, not every time, but uh, generally are very passionate about the work that they do and they take it very seriously. So it's as much of a lifestyle and a life's work as it is a, you know, a paycheck. Yeah. yeah. And, and you ended up actually accomplishing your goal. You worked in a major Canadian airline. You started off at a young age, if I'm not mistaken. Can you take us through the steps there too? I mean, uh, I listened to you in a few other podcasts and it sounded like you were, you know, even skipping some high school classes to <laughs> to go to the airport and fly. Like it was really intense and, and you did it. It was, you accomplished this kind of major dream and goal. So yeah. Can you tell us what, what, I, what went on there and, and what was like working your way up to the top? Absolutely. Yeah. It was, um, you know, with hindsight, I, I don't think I would recommend skipping class, you know, but uh, for me, I, I was struggling in the sense that I had higher ambitions. I had um, sort of a, a sense of direction of how to get to what my higher ambitions uh, were, were sort of taking me towards. And, um, and, you know, I found myself sitting in, you know, um, English class thinking to myself, gosh, you know, I love to read, I love to write, and none of this is working for me. And, uh, so I would often, yeah, I would hitchhike. Another thing that I wouldn't recommend doing, I mean, this was in the, the mid nineties, you know, so maybe a different time, but, um, and I lived in a small town too. So anybody who picked me up was somebody I was all but guaranteed to know. 
but yeah, I would I would sneak off in the middle of uh, of class and uh, go fly uh, fly airplanes when I was 17 years old, and um, it it just was uh, it, I think it was it was like a compass in that it oriented a lot of the decisions uh, that I made in that stage of my life, and for that I'm most grateful because you know at at the age of you know 17 18 even up to 20 25 years old you're making decisions that do have the potential to ripple through the rest of your life and you're doing so uh you know a lot of, oftentimes based on the guidance and help of of adults but at the end of the day it's it's your decision to make and so um you know i was very lucky to have uh, a compass and i think if you can take anything out of my story it's find a compass, find something that you're oriented to. It doesn't matter if it seems lucrative or not. If it's playing pool, if it's playing poker, if it's drawing, you know, or if it's, you know, being in a laboratory looking at uh, uh, slides under a microscope, great. But, you know, take what it is that you feel gravitically attracted to, that you can't avoid being, uh, being involved in and, and try and make that your, your compass and uh, perhaps even your career if you're lucky enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so cool. Yeah, great advice to our listeners. And, and that, yeah, it really emanates from you. And so that's, that's really quite cool to hear. You know, it's funny, I have a few friends just two, but they're in a aviation. And they, they've, since like you said, you, it seems to be since you're a kid, that's something I'm really passionate about. And, you know, over the past two years, they've, they've been such critical thinkers, which is really interesting. So I've started to wonder if it's a little bit of a, something to do with the industry and my research into it, you know, they're very safety oriented, right? Like it seems to be part of being a pilot or working towards that is, you know, being a park or something or wherever, and they'll be oriented around safety for others and uh, thinking through things. And, and so I was wondering, you know, I, I know even on, on airplanes that, you know, they go as far as to not allow the same meal for this for two pilots i mean is that the kind of safety and, and and critical thinking is that something that is just kind of seems to be inherent to the job as well it certainly is um and it certainly was i i wouldn't say we are losing that necessarily but we've seen um sort of a i would say a pathological safety mentality mm. added on top of what was otherwise inherently a um um, a logical approach to safety and and it's of course all this stuff pertinent to COVID you know mm -hmm. and and you guys see it just as well as as the rest of us you know you can't you can't be within six feet of another human being until you're sitting two inches from them on the airplane yeah. and um, you know these things don't really add up or make much sense I think logically so um, I'm all for safety in fact I, I describe my job as as risk mitigation, mm. uh, largely what we are there to do. I mean, yes, we fly the airplane and we pride ourselves in doing the actual physical flying part well, but I, I would say that the, the more nuanced definition of a good pilot is one who is capable of making very good decisions consistently in under a, a, a wide variety of adverse uh, circumstances. Mm. And, um, you know, for those of us who take that type of thing seriously, the way that the COVID protocols were being sort of handled um, just seemed antithetical. It seemed to be kind of the polar opposite of, of what we were being told to do. So uh, with the rest of our, our um, time at work. So um, yeah, I, I, I do embrace the safety culture in aviation. I think by and large, they have set um, sort of the bar for other safety related industries 
um, I don't see much of what they've done during COVID as being valid or, or even meaningful in any long-term way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a delicate answer. And I, I know I sound like I'm hedging, but uh, of course, you know, COVID was such a change uh, in the way people did business that um, it, you know, I, I think it's appropriate to look at, at uh, aviation from a pre-COVID or a post-COVID um, uh, point of view. So that's just what I'm doing. Yeah, right on. Yeah, it seems in, in many industries, in many different sectors that that there is now pre-COVID and post-COVID, you know, there may have been rules and regulations and, and things you thought would be pertinent in any scenario to, to have implemented and, and to think critically. But it seems that, you know, COVID maybe with the, you know, we've seen, you know, people's reliance on, on technology and, and, you know, there's fear and, and maybe kind of just bypassing that <laughs> a little bit of critical thinking. I, I don't know, but um so then the mandates come into place here. It's funny for people who, who you know, I, I'm not vaccinated myself, but um, with personal choice, but I've had friends who, who said recently, oh, well, we're going somewhere and let's go to Vegas or let's go to Cancun and, and Sheldon, you want to come? And I said, well, you know, I'm, unfortunately, just up until the announcement recently, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not able to. And they known this and, and were very supportive, but they said, really, like, is that still going on? So this like, surprise that this, these mandates had lasted so long, you know, even implemented in the first place, but it seems like they kind of got overlooked for quite an amount of time. Just to go back to the beginning though, you know, this coming down the, down the pipes was, this must've been kind of shocking. Did you, did you feel this coming? And, and is this really what ultimately said, you know, okay, enough's enough. We're going to form free to fly with Matt or with Greg, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, so the genesis of free to fly was, was very much organic, uh, but it's like you're alluding to, it was initially um, something that was being bantered around by people who, I would say that they saw this coming. Um, you know, there, there, there are sort of two categories of people who saw this coming. Um, and, you know, one category, uh, well, let me say, the half of, of us who saw this coming were very vocal about it, even as far back as, as SARS, the original SARS during 2003, 2004, saying, hey, you know, where this leads is, is pretty dark and, and there's some potential for um, really for tyranny to, to emerge from these types of policies. Uh, th those who were vocal about it and those who were not vocal about it. Uh, the ones who were vocal about it often burnt out their credibility among their peers uh, right off the bat. And then there were the, the ones who weren't so vocal about it. And I was one of those, I guess you could say I was somewhat vocal at times, but, um, but by and large, I just observed, quietly made my own sort of uh, worldview and, and just waited to see where it all went. And I think Greg was, was somewhat that way. Um, what you see from the people who were dealing with the, the precursors to COVID uh, what, what they were doing when they were dealing with it silently was they were just sort of making decisions quietly with their families mm -hmm. around what they believed to be true. And it, it would have been invisible to the untrained eye. Anybody who wasn't, you know, in this mindset probably wouldn't have even noticed it. But like with my own family, for example, we, we kind of, um, we reasoned that, that, you know, if there was ever going to be a hostile takeover of government, it would probably come by way of a disease. And what would we do if, if that was the case? And um, it fell along you know, two obvious answers. One, the disease is a real threat and, and we're really in physical danger. So we had a plan for that. And then we had a plan for, for what we would do if, if it turned out to just be, I guess you could say a false flag. I'm not saying that COVID was a false flag, but 
you know, if it didn't have the immediate evidence that that there was risk and danger. And, um, you know, our, our plans didn't didn't go unchanged. Like they say, you know, no good plan survives uh, first contact with the enemy. And uh, certainly we had to had to modify, you know, what we planned to do as a family. But by and large, we, we were ready to act. And I think that was the key with with us uh, as a family, my own family specifically, and, and how we were able to mitigate some of the fallout from the COVID stuff. Yeah. And uh, it, it cut me off if I'm going on too long about this, but um, you know, what, what happened to my own family, I'm, I'm still processing and I'm very much grateful uh, that it happened the way that it did. We, we actually decided very early on in 2020 to move to Florida. And um, we did that you know, under the, the belief that this was not as much of a threat as the media was, uh, was making it out to be. And what, what kind of motivated us to make the decision quickly was we had just, we, we were about to have a child and we left shortly after that child was born. And we, we really believed that there would be some developmental issues with children who were growing up around people in face masks. They weren't seeing facial expressions. They weren't learning to read lips or you know, um, associating, correlating certain patterns of facial expressions with, with sentiment and things like that. So that kind of lit a fire under us to, to make good on, on our plans. And we did. We never looked back. We're, we're very much grateful to be situated where we are now. And uh, as a family, I, I think every one of us would, would acknowledge that we actually used COVID as a, a, a means to upgrade our lives. It sounds really bizarre, but our lives are far better now post-COVID than they, they are pre-COVID. And I guess where, where I'm going with this is there's a few takeaways. One, calibrating your, your worldview with reality and always being willing to reassess and ask yourself, am I off the beaten path here or am I seizing on something that, that other people haven't quite gotten to yet? And, um, and also being willing to make tough decisions uh, in light of even your own feelings of, of wanting to stay put. And um, I often go back to uh, one, one of those case studies that to me uh, taught me more wisdom than probably any other. And it was the sinking of the Titanic, believe it or not. And, and we saw a lot of li lives lost uh, in that event, but we also saw a lot of what appear to be miraculous escapes. And the one thing that that latter group had in common was that they were making good decisions. Mm. They, they were making decisions that were calibrated with their reality as much as they, they longed to, to stay on the safety, the perceived safety of the Titanic. Mm -hmm. they, they took action based on, on what they, they believed was the most logical outcome. And uh, they weren't afraid to, to take the risks necessary to affect the change that they needed to see. So um, if we can take anything away from, from this, I hope it's that we are no longer willing to be in a comfortable state of ignorance. Mm -hmm. We're now willing to, to make the decisions, you know, that need to be made in order to improve or at least sustain uh, our families. And um, I think that uh, all, of, all of us, all of you uh, can certainly find some, some kind of, um, you know, wisdom in events like the Titanic and uh, things like that. So. I think I've gone on enough about that. Yeah, that's so cool because I, I I'm I'm pleased to see where you where you went with after the freedom to fly and and all that and I mean such a great lesson to um, impart upon our listeners that you know same as 
for myself, our families become a lot closer, right? And it really shows at the end of the day, it's, it's relationships with other humans, you know, your family, that's just so critical in, in your ability to, to live a happy life and make decisions that we've had to do the whole, you know, downsizing as well, right? And it's been tough. But in that, it's, you know, and I heard you mention a great quote, which stuck with me now for the past few months, when you were on Kid Carson, you said, I don't know if it was you or Greg, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And it's a good Charles Dickens quote. And I just thought that is just so perfect, right? It really does sum up this, this strange time so well. Um, and I think you've just given me a reason to watch the Titanic, so, which I like. So I haven't done that in a while. That's great. And Florida, I mean, I just have to ask really quickly, how do you like it? Is, is it really a fantastic place? I love it. I love it. It's, um, uh, it's been in my family for several generations. My grandparents moved down here um back in the 70s and uh, we never uh, naturalized or anything like that under them my mom now lives down here uh, i've got uncles and aunts that were born down here so i had a sense of what this place was about but i never appreciated just to what extent their culture was healthy mm-hmm. it sounds funny to say because you know florida is is kind of maligned a little bit you know the whole florida man thing yeah. in the mainstream media but when you know we've been coming my, my own family has been coming ever since I was a little baby. And uh, it was only after COVID that I realized, gosh, you know, they still wave to each other on the street here. Yeah. People still stop and talk to one another on the sidewalks, even if they've never met before. Um, my wife rolls her eyes at me every time I say I'm, I'm going to run in and out of the grocery store to grab something because I always end up in conversation <laughs> with some stranger in the, the aisle, you know? Yeah. So but my, my experience with Florida, it's, a, it's an extremely social environment. It's very pro-social, very pro-family. Um, you see a lot of, uh, just a lot of, of happy, positive vibes. The kind that I remember in the 90s and hadn't really seen so much of in uh, living the Toronto lifestyle, you know, for the past 15 years, as much as I love the city of Toronto. Um, down here in Florida, it's just, you know, it's open for business. People are happy. People are busy. You know, they're, they're working on, on their lives and uh, they haven't really stopped to, to think about COVID, to be honest. Isn't that amazing? I mean, very similar story. Actually, I do have a whole branch of my family that is from Florida, Boca Raton areas. For those oh, nice. In Florida, yeah, great area. You know, we go up by Fort Lauderdale, cousins in Fort Lauderdale, everything. And it was when I was growing up there, you know, we'd go down there for the winter. It was usually a getaway and yeah, it really does have that. People are playing tennis. I think it has something to do with the sun. Is what I'm kind of guessing that that's got to play some kind of effect. People are happy. And you know, now we talk about Canada, these just credible vitamin D deficiencies. And, and yeah, it's it's just we're dealing with a whole different thing up here. But really quite cool. Yeah, you ended up making it down there. So that's that's fantastic. I think um, a lot of our listeners are, are big Florida fans. So that's uh, very cool to hear. Um you know, for a lot of people, I would assume, though, in, in the aviation industry, it's such a specialized skill. It's such a long, I mean, it's really more of a lifestyle because it's just such incredible hours to, you know, I've, from my friends who are, you know, coming back and we see each other on with Christmas break and everything. And they're telling me about the hours that they have to log for flights to become a commercial airline. It's just like, oh, my God, it's huge amount of time. And the skill level it takes is incredible. So, you know, from being all of a sudden kicked off the, the job from vaccine mandates, you know, it's got to be a, a difficult thing to just quickly readjust into a new, you find a new job, essentially. Is, is that true? I mean, have a lot of your members been having a, a, a difficult transition with that or is it or has it gone smoothly? It's been it's been different for everyone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, taking the, the uh, spotlight off me for a second and maybe putting it onto our membership. We've seen everything among our aviation professionals. Maybe I should back up a little bit. So for, for those of your viewers um, who aren't aware, 
uh, free to fly, which is uh, free to fly.ca, F R E E T O F L Y.ca, um, is a group that we started that encompasses both aviation professionals and passengers who did not wish to get vaccinated and who were therefore disaffected by the, uh, the mandates. And so we, we've likened ourselves to essentially a passenger advocacy group where we, um, you know, we want to share uh, each other's sort of uh, pain, but at the same time, we want to amplify one another's voices. And we figured that aviation professionals could lend their credibility to the passengers who were disaffected and the passengers could uh, lend their economic force to the, the employees, the professionals who uh, were disaffected. And so we have a, a component of our group that is comprised of professionals. And then we have a, a component that is uh, comprised of passengers. From the uh, professional component, we've, we've probably um, been much more connected with them. Uh, they, they're more directly involved in our everyday operations. And we've seen the full gamut and this goes back to your question, uh, Sheldon, about you know how, how they're handling it. Mm -hmm. We've seen everything from from you know people who ought to be or are on suicide watch mm -hmm. to uh, to those who have taken this as an opportunity to live their dreams. You know, there's there's a wide wide gamut of of how people have been affected by this. You're absolutely. Uh, spot on when you identify that aviation, not just as a pilot, but even the flight attendants and uh, dispatchers, you know, it's, it is a lifestyle. The hours are strange. The, the jargon is a little bit weird and technical, um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of how we uh, make decisions, we're always, as we, you know, talked earlier, uh, making decisions with safety in mind. And this has, has a way of uh, impacting even your, your private life outside of work. So it's very difficult to disconnect oneself from an aviation career. And that, that has, I would say, been universally challenging for everybody, myself included. Mm -hmm. um, on, on the more positive side of things, it's, it's, it's really served as uh, an opportunity, as I said earlier, to upgrade one's life, to ask the questions, you know, if I didn't have my aviation job, what would I do with my, myself? How would I make a living? Um, what do I value outside of aviation? And, and for me personally, um, there, there's no avoiding the fact that being a, you know, a, a big shot airline pilot can mess with your ego a little bit, you know? And, and even if you're a grounded person who has you know, good values, it's still easy to begin identifying yourself as an airline pilot instead of say a human being mm. or a husband or a father. Mm -hmm. And and so this for me was exactly the shock that I needed to to be reminded that no no I'm not an airline pilot first I'm I'm a husband first I'm a I'm a father first and I'm a son and you know, a family member a community member so um, there have been some good things and there have been some bad things and uh, I'm certainly myself trying to focus on the good yeah yeah right on yeah I, I mean uh, yeah well said and. It is really that, you know, I think a lot of young people going into the workforce, just as the point on you, you just touched on there, we end up identifying, it seems like we have a culture that tries to identify people with the jobs that they have, you know, rightfully so, but because there's a certain element of that, you know, what takes up maybe the most of your time in the day, but 
it seems to be what are you right and people will say well i'm i'm you know like you said i'm an airline pilot or i'm a, a lawyer or i'm a doctor and that's it seems to identify you it's what you're about we're really the correct response would be i'm like you said i'm a son first and foremost i'm a husband first and foremost a, a family right like that's essentially what you would try to strive for and it gives real principles and and it grounds you with that reality and that truth prior to, you know, first and foremost, rather than it being, you know, your whole world is situated around your profession. And therefore, you'll go along with anything you may actually really disagree with just simply to keep your, your profession. So, yeah, really ad admirable. I, I really like that response there. I, I just had a, you know, it's funny, I've got a few friends who are also stewardess, airline stewardess. I mean, in your group ranges, it's, it's not just airline pilots, not just stewardess, it's, 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 you know, it must be people like the baggage handlers, everyone's involved. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely correct. Baggage handlers, dispatchers, customer service agents. We even have IT professionals uh, who work in aviation that have uh, joined us. Air traffic controllers, that's another demographic that uh, jumped on pretty strongly uh, with Free to Fly. So it's, it's all of the, the professions that we have relied on, all of us, at one point or another, to, to ensure that we arrive safely at our destination when we travel by air. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that have come out and said, hey, this isn't, this isn't right what we're doing. Yeah. So we ought to listen. Yeah. And it's, it's so cool too, because what I really liked about your group when I, I first you know, was introduced to it was that it was vaccinated and unvaccinated. It didn't define you what, what you know, if you need were Democratic or Republican, it didn't say it was just about freedom oriented and freedom loving and, and loving Canadians, right? Like love was an important thing. And I thought, wow, that is such a great, you know, from our group, you know, trying to, you know, a great group for all the freedom groups, I think was was yours and a number of others, but uh, to learn what, what angle is the best to take in, in kind of achieving our goal on this and what what's the best thing to rally behind and freedom and love was a great one. So I, I got to commend you for that because I, I really was like, that's on the ball, really well said. Um, so just back to the stewardess um, I had mentioned there, they had actually brought up an interesting point. I spoke with them a couple of days ago and they said, well, you know, we were, we've taken tons of shots and tons of vaccines and traveling and pilots too in traveling all around the world. You guys travel to, you know, maybe India or all around, you know, shots uh, and not to get too personal, but are something that wouldn't be too foreign, the, the idea. So they were laughing when they said people called us anti-vaxxers for not wanting to get the COVID vaccine when, you know, this one seemed particularly strange and with a bit of critical thinking, they thought, I'm okay, I, I don't want that. But, you know, that vaccines are not uncommon in, in the aviation industry. Is that correct there? That's absolutely correct. And uh, there, there are even vaccines that are recommended in our company policies for travel to say Brazil or Morocco, you know, places where, where certain diseases are, are known to be prevalent and where the local populations uh, in, you know, have some degree of protection just by virtue of their proximity to these diseases. Mm -hmm. um, whereas somebody coming from, you know, cold Canada going to, you know, the uh, Amazon basin is, is probably going to succumb a lot quicker to some of the diseases that are, are endemic in that area. Um, that being said, I mean, you, you've seen an entire array of personal philosophies on, on how to mitigate those risks. And um, my, my own philosophy has been really to, to take a look at the, the general risk to, to any and all human beings um, and, and measure them against known risks that we take on a, on a daily basis, whether it be driving in a car or having a certain type of surgery. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, I found personally that that's done a lot to 
um, kind of calibrate, I guess, my decision making. Mm -hmm. Personally, I haven't taken a single vaccine since I got uh, hired into the airline business. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in Brazil, I've spent a lot of time in, in Asia and India, um, hot places where there are, you know, diseases. And uh, I would say probably the one that scares me the most is malaria. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple of friends that, that caught that and that, that's not a, a pleasant thing at all. Um, but that being said, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be in the, the era in which we find ourselves and to be in the part of the world in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we have the, the means to really combat most of, of what uh, is out there. Um, there's this idea, and I think maybe now is a good time to, to maybe delve into it quickly. Um, this idea that, you know, we're, we're, we're charting an un, sort of an, we're, we're in uncharted waters here. In, in this brave new world, 21st century airline travel, you can be in India by this time tomorrow morning and, uh, you know, and, and vice versa. You can have uh, India in our part of the world uh, this, by this time tomorrow. And um, the, the assertion is that, you know, we need bold new medical policies to mitigate the, the increasing risks uh, posed by mixing up the world's population as much as it's being mixed up right now. And to that, I, I say, um, good theory, uh, probably even correct, I would suggest. It's, it's probably correct. However, it's about 100 years too late. We've been traveling like this for almost 100 years now. 1930s, the late 1920s, um, uh, the flying boats, uh, the Pan Am service, um, the British Overseas uh, Aviation Service, uh, I forget what it was, BOAC anyway, what it, whatever it stood for. They were mixing us up um, in, in this exact way going all the way back to the 20s. And before that, there were the steamships. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see that we're in a brave new world now. If, if this was the 1920s, you could make that argument to me and I, I would be a little bit more open-minded about it. But I think it's, it's uh, that ship has sailed to, to borrow a pun. So I just don't see that as a, a valid um, uh, basis for heavy-handed uh, medical policy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's amazing too because it seems a lot of our medical suggestions or policy suggestions are coming from from policymakers, right? Like that was a big thing with COVID. It was like, yeah, you know, okay, there's, let's stop, let's think about this, you know. But a lot of it was being hammered down by by simply policymakers, and people laugh when they say, you know, who, who do you listen to? I say, well, I I listen to people. I usually, you know, MDs is who I found, PhDs, you know, peer reviewed articles. I was finding a lot to to counter the the popular narrative, so that was going. You know, something's, and then of course the silencing, right? Like, you know, the, the whole aspect of the policymakers coming in to, to do something just for the sake of doing it or look to do something, you know, I found that that had a huge role. So I'm just, it's, yeah, it's a, yeah. You're, you're touching on something quite interesting there, Sheldon. And if you don't mind, I, I'd like to, you know, unpack it a little bit. And um, it's it's this idea, first of all, we've, we've got unelected policymakers mm -hmm. uh, telling telling us what to do here with, with our, you know, our, our medical choices, but, um, but it's 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 being done, I think, in a way that um, that that erodes the, the personal sovereignty. I guess the question becomes: What are we here to do? Are we here to be safe, or are we here to live our lives? And and I think you can have both be true um, in a way that's that's you know not exclusive of one another. But but when when the rubber hits the road, you know, most of us are not willing to throw out those things that are essentially human in order to eke out a little bit of a higher level of safety. And if, if, if your, your average person actually knew, you know, that the margins of safety that we're debating here are fractions of a percent, yeah. you know, we're not talking like, 
if you know if if you go out in the streets your chances go up by by five percent of dying no we're talking like they go up by <laughs> like thousands of a percentage you know so this is we're, we're really uh, at, a, at a point where, where unelected uh, officials are, are now attempting to essentially usurp the individual decision-making mm -hmm. in order to eke out a fraction of a percentage more safety. And I just don't buy that as a yeah. valid starting point. Well, it's amazing how people seem to be at this mindset now where we have become to, you know, it's a big thing is, is what we value in society, right? Do we value personal sovereignty. I think that should be the highest value of all creatures, right? <laughs> Freedom of the uh, bodily autonomy, but um, in all in all manners, but you know, as to what we value, it seems our society is valuing more and more is things like comfort, you know, and it's been primarily a comfortable society for a lot of people, at least in the Western society for, you know, many years now, uh, you know, Greg had mentioned in a previous interview, previous interview app, since World War II, things have been generally comfortable, at least the ability to have, you know, roof over our head and, and a clothes and food and and so it's funny to see that people are now really prioritizing you know what is just i don't want to hear it what how am i going to be still comfortable at the end of this how you know so it's really a a challenging thing to ask people to you know peer over the fence a little bit right get out of your comfort zone and just to look what's coming right because it's not, yeah. it's, not it's gonna be pretty bad here pretty soon so um yeah. and it's affecting the neighbor right now the neighbor's hurt so you know it's it's that a little bit of, it's it's interesting it's it's interesting to see this see this whole thing and and have the perspective of a bit of a humanist perspective because it, you know, I like our laws and everything are really only so good as the people who are going to support the laws I've found, you know, I'm a law student. And so it's really interesting for me to go, yeah, you know, the law is beneficial and there's a lot of great you know lawsuits going on, but it's really important to actually have people who believe in the law, right? Like, Oh yeah. Who support it, so. Or even know what law is, you yeah. know, like if you ask your average Canadian, what a law is, they'll describe the, the process that a bill goes through as it's being assented up through the, the various levels of the legislative process. Yeah. And, and I, I would say, okay, that's a great start. And, you know, it, it's just certainly describing statute law for sure. But, um, a law is really, I would argue, only a law if it is if it is consistent with the laws of nature or God's laws. Yeah. You know, if if you're if you study Thomas Aquinas or uh, Thomas Paine, you know, there's there's this idea that there's a set of laws that exists unwritten in the human psyche, and and that these laws have been consistent throughout every era of humanity and throughout every culture, and and it's those laws that we're often now abrogating uh, in favor of some statute, you know? And I guess, you know, I, I could probably make Titanic analogies for the entire interview, but um, many people don't realize that the Titanic sailed with more, four more lifeboats than what the statutes of the day required. So they weren't, they weren't cutting corners. They had actually done better than what the statutes obligated them to do. Now, the question is, are those statutes still in effect obviously no you know a, a, a boat must have enough room for everybody on board on all their lifeboats so so the, the the takeaway there is that statute law or man's law is is only law if it is consistent with natural law and if it's not consistent with natural law natural law will eventually make the 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 uh, statute so uh, untenable so unstable that uh, it, it will be defeated naturally and this is where I'm going with this is that I think a lot of the solutions with the COVID issues 
uh, surround this phenomenon. You know, we, we like to give ourselves a lot of credit at Free to Fly for moving the ball down the field. And rightfully so, a lot of, a lot of people in a lot of different movements like Free to Fly are making the changes that are necessary to defeat this style of governance. But more broadly speaking, and, and even more powerful than, than us, is the fact that, that nature abhors law that is inconsistent with itself. And, and so I think we're going to see more problems come out of COVID policy than, than, which, uh, than, than that which claimed to be solved by the same policy. And, and it will be that that will ultimately push us back to, to where we need to be. I such a, such a good point. I was my, you know, in law, you, you first read those, the theory, theories of, of law and, and Aquinas and, and like you said, Paine and, and Hobbes and goes for the whole list. But Aquinas is today, we really do base on you know, the idea of our laws is still tried to be based around uh, um, uh, Aquinas and, and certainly in the States when writing their constitution, they, they in large part took a lot of what he said there and is as to heart. Um, and yeah, really fascinating. It really does show that, you know, you could set those lists of natural laws to uh, to anybody at any time, it seems, and in any language. And there is a universal agreement upon those that, you know, bodily autonomy and a few other things is is, is so fundamental, independent thinking. It's, it's really quite amazing. So that's why I kind of, like you said, I'm glad you brought it up. It was kind of my love of the law because I just went, that makes sense. I right? like, I totally, I back that up. I'd fight for that. So that's really quite cool. And yeah, it's, it, uh, Nature's a funny thing, right? We're only still humans and, and nature rears its ugly head. It'll let us know, it seems, once in a while where we're at. And so, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, not too much of a, a wake-up call has to be made, but, you know, it seems to be going that way, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to, to talk to real quickly, again, I'm so admir I, I ad admire, sorry, <laughs> uh, you guys so much for doing vaccinated and unvaccinated and not pushing one group aside. I mean, for a real thing, this is jobs we're talking about. And, uh, you know, for students, there's a whole different thing and in different areas of our people's lives and times in the lives, there's, you know, maybe different rationale for having to get something. But I mean, really about a job is just one of the most necessary things in our society. I mean, people say that, you know, uh, it, you've lost so much for so many unvaccinated people when they, you know, were, were you lose your job, right? Like that is your essential, your, you know, part of being human and having a right to, to life and liberty and, and the pursuit of happiness surrounding with a job, at least in our society. And so, you know, it's funny, real quick thing. It's funny that we still call many unvaccinated selfish when, you know, we've lost clearly so much in, in the case of, you know, independent thinking, but not to harp in any manner on those who, who are vaccinated, who decided to get vaccinated. And I mean, that's valid and they're looking and they wanted to get a job or keep their job and understandable uh, if that's the decision they made. But you know, what's really difficult too is just that airline pilots, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, seem to have a little bit of an elevated risk when you guys are sitting at such a high altitude flying. Is that true? Are we seeing you know medical issues arise from possibly being at, at the uh, flying for such a high altitude for a long period of time? Do you know of anything like this? I, I've just recently been introduced to this kind of uh, these issues, but maybe you could fill us in a little bit. Sure, it's a good question, Sheldon, and um, it's it's one that is certainly relevant and uh, topical right now uh, for the work that we're doing. Um, we were certainly running into uh, people firsthand who were coming to us saying, "I have this problem," or "I've had this sensation." Um, Greg is uh, fielding many of these calls, and he likes to. Uh, um, sort of, of uh, illustrate just how severe it's gotten uh, with the anecdote of the pilot who was in such pain he 
nearly diverted the aircraft to a different destination so that he could have medical attention. And um, it was only, uh, you know, in arriving at, at, at his original destination that he was able to get into a doctor who initially turned him away. He had to force uh, upon them the, uh, the, the necessity to be tested to do a stress test, which did in fact find problems with his heart. Um, you know, our, our healthcare coverage traditionally pre-COVID covered for pilots specifically compression stockings, which, uh, you know, has a sort of a, a small uh, ability to stop blood from pooling in your feet. And you might've heard of the, the term deep vein thrombosis, yes. which is uh, the other name for it is economy class syndrome or coach class syndrome, uh, because it, it essentially it, it's thought to occur uh, as a result of being stationary and stagnant in the seated position uh, at high altitudes uh, for long, prolonged periods of time. Um, many people don't realize that, you know, when we're up in an airplane, we're not breathing air that's at ground level. We're breathing air that's somewhere between five and 8,000 feet above the ground. Uh, Denver, Colorado is around uh, 5,500 feet above the ground. So, you know, and, and we've got Olympic athletes that go there to do their running events and, and to train for their different, you know, endurance events, because if you can teach your body how to be good at, at that altitude, uh, then when you go to a lower altitude where the air is more dense, your performance in theory is much better. Um, but there, you know, being up that high absolutely stresses the body out. And if your body is prone to clotting, uh, this is what we see a higher, you know, likelihood that you're going to run into clotting problems at altitude than uh, say on the ground. So given the fact that the, the risks surrounding the COVID vaccine seem to largely relate to clotting, it would stand to reason that pilots and flight crews uh, who spend much of their time at work at altitude are, are at a far higher risk uh, for, for you know, the, the, the pathologies that surround clotting. Yeah. Um, we've, we've had some help from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, which you may have heard of, CCCA. Um, and they, they uh, consist of a, a group of, of university level researchers, laboratory researchers, medical doctors, practitioners, and um, uh, people who understand these things on a, on a level that is uh, scholastic. And they wrote an entire document for us to give to our unions and our companies uh, in order to sound the alarm on these exact type of risks. And Sheldon, would you know it? Not one of them that we're aware of looked at it. We tried, we tried, and, and it was nothing but, but PhDs, MDs on, on the paper, and they just wouldn't look at it. So it, it, it's kind of ironic, you know, when, when I was in my young, young teens, this was still really pre-internet, the internet was just coming out. Um, what, what parents were teaching their kids, or some parents were teaching their kids in those days was, don't believe everything you see on television. Yes. And now, you know, we've got people who are getting all of their information from the news. And when you, when you bring a, an opposing point of view that hasn't made it to the mainstream news, they go, oh, where did you get that? The internet? And, and it really, I can't help but scratch my head when I hear this mentality because the internet is still a free market of ideas, which means you're going to get extreme ideas on both sides of the coin. But through what is most likely a dialectical process, an adversarial intellectual debate, you can tease out you know, the, the most valid elements 
of, of any one theory. And, and that's not something you can do on the television. Yeah. So I really shake my head. You know, I, when somebody says, oh, you're reading too much of the internet, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, you're, you're watching too much TV. Yeah, exactly. It's such a good point. And the funny thing about like our TV <clears throat> process is as I have, people say the same thing. Like I actually, I have this thing where I kind of like look to be proven wrong. I mean, again, mm -hmm. I don't get any pleasure from taking the time I could, you know, have right now working or whatnot in, in a higher paid position to do what we're doing, you know, to, and to be, you know, advocating for such basic things as bodily autonomy and, and rights. But, you know, I really did try the TV route. I, I took that time in the past years and I sat down and I went, okay, you know, I didn't grow up with the TV in my house. I don't know if that would change things, but I sat down and I thought, you know what? Okay. I'm going to, I'm, I want to be proven wrong here. So let me absorb what's on the TV. It's amazing. We have all this advertising and this money that is being thrown out towards getting people vaccinated, but it seems for the life of the, all the efforts, you could not get one clear answer or sensible answer. And I really did want to, you know, give it all the effort I could. And actually I have friends say, well, you just don't watch enough TV, which again, to me is totally flawed, but I actually do watch enough. And it still is just to me. And I, I use my words or try to very carefully. It's just junk is a word I would kind of pops to my mind again, after two years to, to clarify my wording, that's like as simple as I can make it because it, it really is. It's just like, this is unbelievable, but um, yeah, incredible. And, and, and just back to the, uh, the flying there for for you know being vaccinated you actually do have to tick off a box when you fly usually right to say if you have a medical if you're hurting or you you know maybe sick or you may have food poisoning to ensure that the flight will go safely i mean it feels like people would almost be inclined even if they may have a heart issue they just found out about you know it's it's if if you, you know just to check the box to get on the flight and say I, i'm feeling good just because it's your life um, you know it's your work it's how you feed your family like it really seems we're putting people in a dangerous position when you know giving them uh, this injection and, and then saying you know your, your life really depends upon it i mean it's just it seems just crazy to think that so and yeah. it's really the passengers at the end of the day that pay the price because you know we're we're we were just talking with lawyers about this last week you know, and, and trying to figure out what do we tell people who are flying with, with severe chest pain and, you know, the feeling of tingles up and down their neck and numb fingertips, you know, and, and these people are trying to get help from doctors, from aviation doctors specifically, and they're being turned away for what we can only speculate is political reasons and narrative reasons. So they've tried to get diagnosed. They've, they do not you know, they, they've struck out. So in other words, the doctors are, are saying, no, it's not that it's not a vaccine problem, go away, essentially. And it's left them with zero ability to tell their company that they're off sick for any medical reason, because the doctor has said, no, it's not a valid medical reason. So now they have to go to work when they know in their heart of hearts that they're not legal to go, you know, in terms of the, the, the standard of, of health that we are obligated to be at when we show up for work. And so it's a real catch 22. They can't not go to work, but they, they really ought not to be going to work. So what do we do? You know, and this is really where um, uh, Free to Fly is, is working right now to, uh, we've, we've built, and uh, largely the credit goes to Greg on this one. He's built a network of uh, groups around the world uh, from seven or eight different countries now uh, with 13, 14 different entities, all medical or aviation related. 
um, where our goal is to identify pilots who are in this situation and to help them get the medical attention that they need so that they can make the right decision and have the full breadth of support from their companies and their unions. Yeah. So it's a project. It's ongoing for sure. Huge. Yeah. It's, it's so incredible. You guys are taking that on. It's, it's amazing. It's, and it's crazy to think that if, you know, you have one vaccine and you're injured or you had a problem and you don't want to get the second, you're just tossed into the category of the unvaccinated right like there it's like the second class citizen you're you know i hate throwing that term around but we really do feel like one you're just thrown into that category and and so long you know clean the hands and then that's it so it's it's really amazing that you guys are creating a community too because the community is so important it seems that you know like you say people really you know there's there is real mental health issues around having your your job thrown away and taken away and being treated you know in a really kind of terrible manner you know you need community and it's just so fundamental to 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 have that ability so you know i think everyone thanks you guys for that for for keeping that up that's really quite incredible well thank you i don't know if we have a few minutes I, i have a sort of an idea that's been in my my head and maybe you can help me unpack it a little bit um do we have a few minutes for that yeah no please yeah 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 no much time yeah yeah and and it's a little bit you know meant for more mature audiences but uh, i think we're all kind of that way and and we're more concerned about truth than being uncomfortable so i'm just going to launch into it um we we know all of us really inherently what the first profession was right the idea that that prostitution um was the first profession is is not a new idea it's centuries old really um and I find that interesting because what, what that is, is, is sort of an acknowledgement of implicitly is that there is a nexus between uh, you know, the business of reproduction and, and commerce. Mm. And, and I find that quite interesting because it suggests to me that we're looking at two of the most fundamentally innate human instincts mm. to, to procreate and to do commerce. Mm. I would suggest that those two instincts are almost on the same level as one another and if you ask me commerce is the way by which i mean pragmatically speaking it's the way by which um, resources are distributed in the most efficient means possible but it's also how humanity uh human beings individual human beings do intimacy with strangers you know so commerce is is a way by which strangers can interact with each other in a very personal way without having to get to know one another, without having to lay out ground rules or, or structure, you know, the, the, the nature of their, their relationship. And, and humans really like to have that kind of a framework so that, you know, it's like the lines on the road, you know, we, we want them there. They don't block us. You know, you could veer into the other lane if you wanted to, but the idea is in your mind that this is a barrier and everybody follows along and by and large, it works very well. So where I'm going with this is, you know, we're seeing commerce being regulated more and more and more. And it, if you ask me, it's not improving the world in any way, shape or form. Uh, it's, it's actually taking us away from our innate instincts in, and, and, you know, taking, removing the benefits of, of what commerce actually does. So to wrap this up, and, and this is where I would seek your feedback as well. So feel free to just be as honest with me as you want, but I think it's, it's somewhat appropriate to view how a government or to to measure how a government treats commerce by imagining that that same policy was being applied to human sexuality. Okay, you're gonna get taxed for that. Oh, you can't do that on this day or you can't do that with that person, you know? Uh, It's 
that in, in the context of human sexuality would be patently absurd. Mm. Um, and, and I would suggest that, you know, as we make those types of policies in the realm of commerce, it's, it's equally absurd, yes. you know? So um, I, I think we can maybe orient ourselves because, you know, largely the power that we're seeing um, from government in, in, in invoking these COVID policies, mm-hmm. we're seeing what once was commercial power that we gave to the government. We gave them the ability to regulate commerce. And this is what they've done with it. They've, they've, they've grown that power such that it goes into every aspect of your personal life. And I don't think that's appropriate. So I hope we can orient ourselves around that idea. And I would welcome you, you know, to suss out any of the, the um, valid or invalid points of that uh, whole assertion. So I, yeah, I really like that. I mean, it's, it's a funny saying for me now, because I grew up in a very democratic, liberal kind of family traditionally, to say government's too big. But my God, I mean, it's funny to hear my father who's a history professor now say that as well. He just government, this is an example of government too big. It happens, this is it. Like, you know, it's, it's very clear. I mean, a great point in that I once heard early in my studying in law, it was that too many laws create very little justice. You just can't, and it was actually funny enough, one of the heads of the RCMP is uh, had come into do a, a presentation. That's what he said. He said there's just too many laws. You know, we, more laws, less justice. Exactly. It, yeah. it falls less on the individual now, and it more on the system. And then the system creates all these barriers. And then in the meantime, there's loop, loopholes. It's just this crazy thing. So it was, in my mind, I, I heard that and I went, "Yeah, wow, that is something to be cautious of." And uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, just kind of with the legal hat on. It's you know, we have laws. Say with with procreation, you can't hurt partner right you, like there are basic laws and same with commerce you I mean you can't hurt or kill the person you're doing business with mm-hmm. but by and large you know it's it's left up and the kind of the beauty and the creativity of, of both actions i guess is that it is the human who ends up it's the humans engaging who who make it what it is and you know, you know some of the greatest business models of all time are born from you know you don't have the government regulation pressed down you know it's it's the individual creativity that that leads to to the creation of an amazing product or an amazing system and, and it oh sorry go ahead. no you go ahead no no go ahead well it, it's it you know you're you're bringing us back to the idea of natural law you know that that uh, there are natural laws in in all human relationships right and and by and large we do a good job following them uh with our hearts and and with our minds to a lesser extent yeah. but uh you know what this does is it allows for spontaneous order and spontaneous order i would argue is messy, but far more robust, mm-hmm. far more sustainable, far more stable yeah. uh, in terms of the systems that, that form organically, spontaneously. Those which are formed centrally um, often require, require some degree of, of coercion, um, you know, and, and like, I, I don't even call government government. I call it the central problem solving agency. <laughs> And, and what's, it's, it's an ironic term because, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. When you sell yourself and, and, and the reason you ought to have power as being your ability to solve problems, all of a sudden, it's very tempting to go out and start causing the problems that you aim to solve because this is good for business. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, you know, I think we've, we've given too much power to the government. It's time to take some of that back. And we do that really by acknowledging that certain systems 
ought to form naturally and organically. And we don't really need to do much to make that happen. We just nurture our culture. We raise our children well. We treat our families and our friends well. We do the right things even when no one's looking. We try to be the best people we can be. And in doing so, things improve. You know, as long as there's a, an aggregate of humanity that is working that way, things get better. So true. So true. So, so well said. I, I mean, in all my four years, at least of my undergrad, which is primarily around history and, and uh, sociology, I think if there's anything like four years of what my thought process and, and the final kind of summary of all my thought was what you just said. I mean, so important to have that. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was in school with a lot of great people. Uh, many of them wanted to be politicians, which is an interesting thing. I mean, technically, they say the best leaders are, don't want to be leaders at all. Right. You're thrust into the position and they're too honest to go. I don't want to tell anyone what to do or to lead anybody, that's not my job. But, you know, they, they famously kind of over history make the best leaders. So, you know, as, as we say, but um, they kind of, there was a desire to, to, to be um, in, in become a politician. And uh, it was very strange because just like what you said, it was creating issues, you know, you needed to find an issue and, you know, create them almost to solve them. And it was just like really strange. And so after the first, I think my first class, I was like, totally, I went in with a lot of passion. And thought, this would be great. Just totally repulsed, like, just really like, oh my God. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a social thing. And um, yeah, it really falls upon the individual and the, and the family. I'm really seeing those values so clearly now, and it's taken me some time, but how important that is. And, and to give the, you know, the individual and the family the support that they need as the government should, right? Rather than creating problems <laughs> for them, which is kind of what we've seen, making it more difficult so that there's, you know, people who, uh, you know, I, I asked some people, you know, what happened to you in high school? Like what, what caused you to, to need to, to control other people? But anyways, a really great point, Matt, just to see that those, it's really important that it's the individual, it's the family. And that's really, you know, individuals connecting that makes it think the world so great, right? Think yep. sharing ideas. So I love that. I um I wanted to ask to um you know what right we've taken up so much of your time it's been an hour I was got to promise you fifty minutes because I know you're so busy but you know what was something you would leave for uh, advice you'd have for people maybe something to do with you know risking something to for the benefit or you know is there any particular advice you leave for people especially maybe younger people or people in university or, or coming into the workforce and who are going to be making some tough decisions in, in the future. I know it's kind of a loaded question there for you, but anything to, to have thoughts on like that? That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I would suggest uh, seek wisdom. Mm. You know, there's the, we're, we're, we're being inundated with, with intellectual pursuits, which I'm all for, and I enjoy myself on a selfish level. Um, but there's intellectualism and there's wisdom. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily one and the same. And, and I would suggest even that if you were to break the two down and, and sort of unpack them, um, you know, the higher intelligence that we're, we're all being told is very important, which is important, that we're learning in, in post-secondary, um, this is, broadly speaking, the ability to sort of understand human patterns, mm -hmm. complex patterns, and, and to work with those patterns. I would say that's sort of loosely IQ in a nutshell. But wisdom is, is more so the study of natural patterns that exist through nature and the use of analogy to infer 
um, you know, meaning of those patterns and, and to extract meaning from, from one area and use through analogy, uh, uh, use analogy to um, sort of unpack meaning in another area that is appropriately, uh, um, you know, uh, like a, analogistic to, to, you know, your first, the first principle that you, you came to understand. So natural patterns are really important right now. And, and if, you can, if you can figure that part out, I think you can really teach yourself how to think. And there's some great thinkers out there. We see them on the internet these days. Jordan Peterson comes to mind. I don't agree with him on everything, but I love how he thinks. Yes. And, and if, we can, if we can teach ourselves how to think, then we can live in truth. Mm. And I think this is where I'm going. Learn how to think so that you can live in truth and always aspire to live in truth because even as uncomfortable as that truth may, might be, it allows you to make good decisions that are calibrated with reality. Mm -hmm. uh, living in a comfortable, anesthetized state while comfortable uh, does nothing for you or your family in the long run. So really learning how to think so that you can live in truth, this would be uh, my advice. Right on. Well, such a well-worded, well-said answer there. Uh, thank you again, Matt, for coming on. Uh, you know, I hope you... Uh, come on again soon and we'll hope to have you on and, and what an amazing listen to I'm I, we were so thrilled our group to, to have you on when I said Matt's coming on from freedom to fly everyone was so excited so uh, again thank you so much and, and we hope to chat with you soon well you're too kind Sheldon I appreciate the work that you guys are doing keep it up and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and uh, seeing where you take all of this right on well thank you very much Matt